I've also got an assignment for you. Okay. Now, I don't know. I hope my English, you're going to be able to keep up with it. Okay. We, we give the children our church a word for the day. Okay. The word is true. Okay? True or truth. I'll take truth. And they're going to keep record of how many times I say that in my sermon. You're the scorekeeper. Okay. So you got to get your pen out. I will. And every time you hear me say the word true or truth, you write it down. Okay. You're going to be in the back. They're going to come through, and they're going to, they're going to give you their answers, and you got to tell them if they're right. You'd be really mean to them if they're wrong. If they're right, you give them a hug, okay? Okay. I'm, ki- I'll, I'm kidding. I'll, I'll give, them, them. give them all a hug. <laughs> Thank you. Love you, brother. It's so fun to have you all here. All right, Macklin's your scorekeeper this morning, everyone. Your word is true, which you will see why. All right, we're, we, as I said, we're preparing our, ourselves to study the book of Acts this year by looking at what transpired between the upper room discourse that we have been studying for a while now and the return to the upper room at the beginning of Acts. We, what we fail to appreciate was just how close those two events are. There are only seven weeks between the cross and Pentecost. And that is truly baffling to historians who study the early movement of Christianity. Because prior to Acts, we know that the disciples are cowardly betrayers of Jesus, abandoning him and all of his claims. It wasn't just Peter. Jesus said that all of you will fall away on account of me. And indeed, all of them did fall away. And then just seven weeks later, for, for perspective's sake, that'd be March 10th for us. Seven weeks later, they are utterly transformed. Ambassadors of Jesus and his message, willing to embrace any and all persecution, including their own martyrdom. How is that possible? What took place in those seven weeks that could have been so utterly transformative? It's very simple. Something happened that convinced them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is true. They knew it. They became convinced of it. And they needed to tell the entire world about it. Last week we looked at Peter's story and saw how grace of Jesus transformed Peter into the leader of Acts. This week we will look at Thomas' story and see how the truth of Jesus transformed the disciples into the leaders of Acts. We inhabit what people call a post-truth age. That is to say, Truth, particularly religious truth, is subjective at best or downright illusion at worst. Meaning, at best, truth is what you make it to be. Meaning, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We just all determine that. But at worst, truth has died the death of kind of this nihilistic cynicism. Nothing's true. It's all an illusion. Something that humans invent as kind of this evolutionary coping strategy to to handle the bleak pointlessness of our existence. Now, the obvious critique of the post-truth age is that it happens to be itself a truth 
claim, and I will choose to resist that tangent this morning. But what's happened, what's happened in this vacuum of post-truth is that it's been filled with this new idolatry of feelings. I believe, the statement, I believe, has been replaced by the statement, I feel. This is a dangerous exchange. One that I see playing out in modern Christianity. Do we gather this morning to celebrate, contemplate, and apply truth? Or do we gather this morning to have our feelings stirred? The Bible certainly affirms feelings and emotions. It is a very robust view of the human being as uh, emotional beings, and that's very important. But the foundation of the Bible is really simple, that it's true. And the central truth of the Bible is that Jesus is true. He actually is who he claimed to be. And that reality, that truth, not feelings, not the feelings of the disciples that were strangely warmed. It is the truth of Jesus that gave birth to Acts and the movement that we call Christianity. And so how did they become convinced that Jesus is in fact true? Well, Jesus did in fact, rise from the dead and prove it to the world. And we are going to see that moment where truth breaks through in our passage and transforms the disciples, Thomas specifically, but the disciples in general before our eyes. My my points this morning, I have two points, and they are the exact same. They're the title of my sermon, Demanding Evidence. But the first point, demanding is a verb. We will see Thomas demanding evidence. The second point, demanding is an adjective. We will see demanding evidence. Evidence making a demand of Thomas and us. So we're going to look at our demand for the evidence, and then the evidence is demand back to us. Let's look at both of those. Demanding evidence. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, listen to this, I will never believe. That statement sounds very similar to the worldview of the modern West, which is why I love the story of Thomas in the Bible and use it often in engaging people who have this modern worldview. It seems to speak uniquely to our context. He is referred to as Doubting Thomas, but he might as well be called 21st century enlightened secular culture Thomas because he perfectly embodies the way of our modern world. Notice how belief is contingent upon empirical evidence. He says, I will never believe unless I see, I touch, I with my own physical senses encounter irrefutable evidence. That sounds like a quote from one of the popular atheists, not a 12 disciple. 
I'll give you some. Richard Dawkins. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need for evidence. Lawrence Krauss. Our conclusions must be based on empirical knowledge alone. Christopher Hitchens. That which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Dan Barker. It's simple. No evidence, no belief. The Apostle Thomas. Unless I see him with my own eyes, touch him with my own hands, I will never believe. Thomas, just like our secular world, is demanding evidence. So let's dwell here with him in verse 25 because it's so important to our context. Here's what I want to do with his statement here. I want to critique it and then I want to affirm it. I want to critique Thomas here and I want to affirm him here because I think both are appropriate. First, let's think critically about what he says in verse 25. The problem with Thomas in this verse is his epistemology. The epistemology is a big word that means the study of knowledge, meaning what we know, how we come to know things, the scope and limits of knowledge and so forth. And what Thomas is doing is he's making an epistemological claim, meaning he is saying, I will never believe unless it fits my criteria. And my criteria is this, I have to see it and I have to touch it in order to believe it. And again, that's the same assumption of our modern world. If it doesn't fit within the narrow scope of testable scientific knowledge, then it cannot be true, or at least we cannot know for certain that it is true. That's essentially what Thomas is saying here. But there's a problem with that, that philosophers are increasingly pointing out. The problem with I only believe in what I can see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands is that the majority of things we believe and live according to do not fit that criteria. Things like love, beauty, purpose, morality, even logic upon which the sciences are based. These things that we all believe in and we all live our lives according to do not meet Thomas's standard in verse 25. When he says, I will never believe unless I can see it and touch it, he has eliminated the vast majority of things that he believes. So that's my critique of verse 25 of Thomas and of that narrative of our modern world, which is so popular in our day. But... At the same time, and more importantly, we do need to affirm Thomas here. Because let's be honest, this is a pretty big claim. A dead man coming back to life. You don't accept a claim like that without any good reason to accept it. And you certainly don't give your life away, as we see in the book of Acts, if it's just a religious myth. So... Thomas's demand for evidence may be a bit overstated. I'll never believe unless I see it touch it. It might be overstated, but I do think it's appropriate. And here's the beautiful part about that. Jesus thinks it's appropriate too. We see this in him and his response to Thomas. I think the most beautiful part of Thomas's story is how graciously accommodating Jesus is to Thomas's doubts and unbelief. Look at how he responds in verse 26. It's very intentional. Eight days later. Now, by the way, 
he didn't just immediately respond. He doesn't answer to Thomas's beck and call. He makes him wait eight days, which I love about Jesus. Eight days later, in your doubts, he shows up. The doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. By the way, as an aside, if you're wondering why we do the greeting of peace in the church, it's been done throughout history where we extend to each other the same words that Jesus extended when he surprised the world with hope, when he said every time, first thing he said to the disciples, Peace be with you. That's where that tradition comes from. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? And put out your hand and place it in my side. Now what we see here in the, sa- in the Savior is one who is okay with doubts. And incredibly patient with his skeptical friend. Every, this is beautiful, every demand that Thomas makes, Jesus provides. Verse 25, unless I see his hands. Verse 27, look at my hands. Verse 25, unless I place my finger in the mark of his nails. Verse 27, put your fingers here. Verse 25, unless I place my hand into his side. Verse 27, place your hand in my side. Now I know what you want to say. He hasn't given me evidence like that. Especially if you're here investigating Christianity and and might call yourself a, a skeptic. Certainly, I think you would rightfully say, well, he hasn't given me that. Must be nice to be Thomas to get to see and touch the resurrected Jesus. But that misses the point. The point of this story and the many other stories that we have of his resurrection is that Jesus has now made himself available to us and to all of history because his resurrection has become a verifiable historical event. In other words, in appearing to Thomas and literally hundreds more publicly, he sets himself apart from all other religious claims. Don't lump him in with someone who gets a vision from God and writes it down in private and asks you to believe it. Jesus never asks that of you. Instead, Jesus confronts human history with this unlikely truth, his outlandish claim actually happened for all the world to see. It is precisely because of the eyewitness accounts like the one in our passage that we can now historically verify the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, in giving Thomas and many others an encounter with the evidence, he has given history the evidence. And so what is the evidence that we have? Here's what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Any good historian with, with intellectual honesty and without an agenda, that's very important, without an agenda, will say there is no way around these facts. These are the agreed upon facts. Fact one, Rome crucified and buried a very popular and public figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Fact two, a few days later his tomb was discovered to be emptied. Fact three, on multiple occasions and in many different circumstances, individuals and entire groups of people, not just his disciples and friends, but even his critics and even enemies, had post-mortem encounters with Jesus. It's a historical, undisputed fact. Fact four, the book of Acts. That is to say, 
out of nowhere and against all odds, there arose an unstoppable movement based not on teachings or revelations, but on a very falsifiable claim, Jesus is risen from the dead. As we will see in Acts, their message was simple. Jesus is risen, you can verify that, therefore he's your Lord. That's how the church became. Those are historical facts that everyone has agreed upon. There are certainly many more, but I'm just naming the ones that are not disputed. And what this evidence does is put skeptics in a very awkward position trying to get around the evidence. There have been many attempts, and they all fail historically. Literally, people have been trying for centuries to come up with another explanation for the evidence, and they continue to fail. I think people just assume that the resurrection is religious folklore based, based um, passed down through centuries by faith when in reality it's the most documented, verifiable, evidence-supported major event from the ancient world. Harvard scholar Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the major contributors to development of Harvard Law School. I think this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. One of the major developers of Harvard Law School said, it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe in it. To put it another way, there is as much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as there is for Jesus himself. That is to say, if there is enough to believe Jesus lived at all, then there is more than enough to believe that Jesus lives again. Simply put, Were we talking about anything other than a resurrection, then there would be zero doubt, historically, that this happened. But the problem, for many, is that we are talking about a resurrection. And that is why many follow the evidence all the way to the end and then say, I don't have another explanation, but this is simply impossible. Dead people don't come back to life. That's fine. If that's you, I respect your honesty just as long as you are willing to admit that you are now choosing blind faith over the evidence. You are the one choosing to reject the evidence because it doesn't fit into your closed-off worldview where transcendent realities and miraculous occasions don't happen. Either way, the one thing we can all agree upon is that evidence is making a demand of us this morning just as it made a demand of, T- of Thomas that day. We have to decide what to do with the resurrection, just like Thomas had to decide what to do with the resurrection, and that's where the passage takes us. We've seen Thomas demand evidence. Now let's look as the evidence makes demands of Thomas. Demanding evidence... As an adjective. Look at what Jesus says after he reveals himself to Thomas. He shows him, it's me, he lets him touch him. And then here's the command of the passage, verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What we see here is that there is no middle ground according to Jesus. It is disbelief or it is belief. There is no room for indifference. I don't really have an opinion on this one. There's no room for indecisiveness. I don't really know what my opinion is. There's no room for half-heartedness. I kind of believe this. 
The resurrection doesn't leave room for responses like that because it's too significant and the evidence is too overwhelming for anything other than I am all in or I am all out. Reject the evidence or accept the evidence. That's the demand of the evidence. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's plenty of room to wrestle with the evidence. There's plenty of room to investigate it. There's plenty of room to consider it and pray through it and all that. But at the end of the day, it's just too significant and the evidence is too much to respond in any other way than disbelief or belief. Verse 28, Thomas's response. My Lord and my God... What's interesting about Thomas is that he has a bad reputation, I guess you could say. He's he's known as Doubting Thomas. But he actually offers the clearest and boldest confession of the divinity of Christ's lordship in all the Gospels. You will not find a statement this clear in all the Gospels. My Lord and my God. You don't get more clearer and bold, Christologically speaking, than that. But I want, what I want to note here is that his confession is a de- direct response to the reality of the resurrection, and that is very important. Why? Thomas is not wrestling with whether he finds Jesus and his teachings to his likings that would not have given birth to the book of Acts. He is not wrestling with whether he finds his heart strangely warmed and is having a mountaintop emotional experience that would not have given birth to the book of Acts. He is not wrestling with whether he sees Jesus as good for his life and his marriage that would not have given birth to the book of Acts. He's not wrestling with any of these things that we in modern Christianity tend to make of Jesus The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible makes a claim. Jesus is risen, which means that he has proven proven himself to be your Lord and your God. Now claim him, worship him, and follow him as such. Period. Tim Keller says like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all of him. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about him? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like him or not, but whether he rose from the dead. And so my appeal to us this morning is the same. I'm not going to ask you if you find Jesus and his message inspiring, compelling, beautiful, or any other subjective opinion that you might come up with. I'm going to present you with one concrete, objective, verifiable challenge What are you going to do with the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Disbelieve it or believe it. Those are the two options of the text. And Jesus is pleading for the latter. Did you notice that his demand is in the form of a plea? Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe Meaning Jesus is not neutral here. He wants Thomas to believe and he wants you to believe because he wants you. I know there may not be room in your worldview for some of you for something so staggeringly unnatural as a resurrection. But what if your worldview is wrong? 
What if it's actually true? What if it actually happened? If so, that changes everything. But here's the point. It does change everything. But everything is changed into something so much better. We don't believe in Jesus because we want him to be true. We believe in Jesus because he is true. But what is so glorious about Jesus is that we want him to be true. (laughs) What we want to be true turns out to be true. We say with Thomas, my Lord, my God, because Jesus is risen, not necessarily because we find him to our liking, but we certainly do find him to our liking. What is it that Thomas wanted to touch? And what was it that that Jesus invited Thomas to touch? His scars. The indelible resurrected marks of his gospel story. The resurrection does not just mean that Jesus is true. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that. But it doesn't just mean that. It means that everything Jesus said and did is true. It means the cross is true. It means mercy and love is true. It means forgiveness of sins is true. It means eternal life and the hope of everlasting joy is true. It means that everything Jesus promised and accomplished with those scars that Thomas touched is true. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is true. And if Jesus is true, then everything you want to be true is true. And that's what we will see happen in the book of Acts. The proclamation that Jesus is true and then the implication that therefore the glorious gospel is true. But before we get there, This morning's passage is making a demand of us. So by way of application, I wish to say to you what Jesus said to Thomas as a minister in his name. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you believe that Jesus is actually true? Not do you feel, do you believe? Not do you want Jesus to be true or do you not want Jesus to be true? Instead, is he true? If so, brothers and sisters, and there is only one acceptable response, and it's this, my Lord and my God. Thomas's response must become our response. The best way to prepare ourselves for acts is to have it settled in our minds and convictions before we get to acts. To have a resoluteness of the truth of this man as resolute as the apostles were who themselves encountered his resurrection and then went to tell the ancient world. Jesus must become for us what he became for the apostles and the early followers of acts. The risen Lord who is your God, therefore he now owns you. All of you. He owns your ethics. He gets to tell you what to do morally. He owns your opinions. He gets to tell you what to believe. He owns your body. He gets to tell you what to do with your body. He owns your tongue. He gets to tell you how to use your words. He owns your sexuality. 
He owns your time. He owns your money. He owns your comfort. He owns your reputation. Every single thing about you is now owned by this one central truth. Jesus is risen from the dead, which means Jesus is your Lord and owner. But what you will discover, and what the early church discovered, is that it is good news to have Jesus as your Lord. For your Lord bears resurrected scars, proving not just that Jesus is true, but that Jesus is is good. Let me pray. Convince us, O God, we believe, help our unbelief. Give us a certainty, a surety, a compulsion, a conviction, a passion that captured the disciples and transformed them in literally seven weeks from doubting, failing, weak followers to certain leaders in your church because they discovered that you're actually risen and true. Give us that, Lord. We need it. Our city needs it. Grant it. We pray that would happen now by your holy sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.